Good evening. It's great to see everybody who's here. We have a wonderful crowd, and I'm honored to be your speaker. We have visitors from sister congregations, visitors from the community. We just want to say that we love you, and we're thankful for your presence. As Brother Daniel mentioned in the opening announcements, Lord willing, for just a little while, we're going to talk about the Bible. Now, as Daniel eloquently uh, announced, one of the best places to study or one of the best subjects to study is the Bible. What we want to do is look at the Bible in an overview sense. If you remember last Wednesday, I talked about how I wanted to go through two different series with the congregation. Sunday morning, we'll be studying through the book of Revelation and the seven churches in Asia. And we will look at that as a mirror for our congregation so that we can better assess which congregation we look like and resemble the most. But on Wednesday nights, we will be studying the Bible. And the first study in this series is the Bible, the book of books. We're going to learn about, in this series, we're going to learn about how to read the Bible, how to study the Bible, how to teach from the Bible. But we got to begin with some Bible basics. And that begins with a lesson about the book itself. As you can see from the title on the screen, the Bible is the book. It is the book. It is the most purchased book of all time. It is the most read book of all time. And it is the most stolen book of all time. The Bible has been popular ever since it was written. And when we see that the Bible is the book, we also need to acknowledge it is the book of books. And what we mean by that is this. The Bible is one volume, but it actually contains 66 books within it. The Bible has two major separations or distinctions. There is the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there's 39 books. Then there is the New Testament. The New Testament has 27 books. Now, if you're like me, maybe you're not good at math, but here's a simple way to remember how many books are in the Bible. If you can just remember there's 39 in the Old Testament, and 3 times 9 is 27, you add that and you get 66. Chase can math check me after the lesson. But pretty much there are 66 books in the Bible. And these books, like I said a second ago, they're divided in a specific way. There is the Old Testament. Now the word testament is just a fancy word for means, it means a contract or it means a covenant. Marriage is a covenant between God and man, between God and woman. So we see this Old Covenant is God's contractual agreement with the nation of Israel. The New Testament is God's contractual agreement with the church. So if you wanted to go and learn about Adam and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses, you'd go to the Old Testament. If you wanted to learn about Jesus, the life of Jesus, His apostles and the church, you'd go to the New Testament. This is the organization of the Bible. But what we want to spend a little bit more time on is speaking of the Bible and inspiration. Inspiration. The Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 15 through 17, 
and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Here the Apostle Paul, he's writing to a young evangelist, Timothy, and Timothy was kind of like his son. He was like his spiritual son. He was kind of like his protege. You could almost think of the relationship between Paul and Timothy as like Mr. Miyagi and the Karate Kid, and then you got Daniel's son. You got the teacher, and then you got the student. So Paul, he's writing to his young protege, and he tells him this, the Bible, we use the Bible for everything. If it's not in the Bible, don't say it and don't do it. The Bible will give you the answer to all of life's questions. To all of life's questions. And the reason why the Bible can do that is because all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. When I say that word inspiration, when we talk about it, what we're not saying is this. When you read the Bible, it's, it's encouraging to God. That's not what we're saying. Though what you and I read in the Bible, it is encouraging. That's not what inspiration actually means. Inspiration comes from a Greek word that literally means God breathed. Or in other words, it means it is of divine origin. It is as if God himself literally spoke. When we read his word, it is from the mouth of God. We learn in Luke chapter 24 and verse 44, the Old Testament scriptures were inspired. Jesus, he quoted, he said, Do you not know that these things from the law and the prophets and the Psalms, they all speak of me? So he referred to the Old Testament and he said, this is from God. And we learn in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, Peter calls the New Testament writings of Paul Scripture. So we see the Old Testament and the New Testament, everything within this book comes from God. It comes from God. Now, it's one thing for me to claim that it comes from God. It's a whole other thing for me to prove it. And what we want to do is look at three proofs for this idea. What proves the inspiration of the Bible? Three things. Number one, that is the scientific and medical foreknowledge of the Scriptures. Number two, it is the unity of the Scriptures. And number three, it is the fulfillment of prophecy. What we want to do very briefly is look at each of these. And we'll start with number one. The scientific and medical foreknowledge of the scriptures. And we want to look at the example. This one particular example. The command for circumcision. In Genesis chapter 17 and verse 12, God told Abraham, He who is eight days old among you, so a newborn, a newborn on the eighth day, you shall circumcise him. Every male child in your generations, he who is born in your house or brought, bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant. Now, I want us to think about this verse 
in the context or in the backdrop of man's reasoning. If you just try and understand this verse in the lens of humans, this makes no sense. Why would God command that you cut a baby's foreskin off on the eighth day? This is just this just sounds weird. Why even the eighth day? Why not the thirtieth day? Why not? Why even do it on any day? Really? Why would you do that? One of the proofs for the Bible's inspiration is that this idea, this command, which was thousands of years before modern day technology, it shows the brilliance and mind of God. Here's what modern day uh, doctors have found out. It is of significant medical importance that male circumcision be carried out on the eighth day after birth. Here's why. Since the level of vitamin K, that's what prevents someone from bleeding out. Vitamin K is the highest on the eighth day, and vitamin K plays a pivotal role in regulation and control of the important clotting factors in the coagulation pathway that helps in stopping bleeding. So God gave this peculiar command. He gave specific directions. And it wasn't for over 4,000 years later we could understand why the eighth day. God chose to circumcise a baby on the eighth day because it was the safest day in a young boy's life that he could ever have that done. There is no way in the world for us to understand this other than the brilliance of God's mind. His scientific and medical foreknowledge speaks for itself. Number two, the second proof for inspiration is the unity of the Scriptures. Like I said a second ago, this one volume is 66 books. These 66 books were not all written at the same time. These books were written over a 1,500-year period a 1,500-year period, and it covers about 6,000 years of history. 6,000 years of history. It was written by over 40 different men across three continents, Europe, Asia, and Africa, and only a fraction of these men knew each other. Some were rich, some were poor, some spoke Hebrew, some spoke Aramaic, some spoke Greek. But what we see is that though it was written over 1,500 years, covers 6,000 years of history, written by over 40 different men over three continents and three languages, it has perfect harmony. Here's what we mean. You guys ever seen this picture? It's honestly one of the most beautiful pictures I've ever seen in my life. Dr. Jordan Peterson, he's somewhat of a philosophical anthro anthropologist, religious, all that, and a bag of chips. He's a big deal today. He came out and he's kind of dipping his toe in religion, in Christianity. And he released this picture. This is a picture of the whole Bible. This picture contains at the bottom a list of every verse in the Bible. This big center divide is the death of Jesus on the cross. That's the whole Old Testament Here's the whole New Testament. When they put in the whole Bible into a computer, what they found out is this. 
All of these connections are all the different times the Bible connects itself within the book. These are all of the different hyperlinks of the Bible. You could go Genesis 3 to Revelation. You could go to uh, Genesis 49, then you could go to Matthew. And you have all of the connections in the Bible. And it shows the mind of God, the complexity of what these men wrote. And they had no contact, very little to no contact with each other. It wasn't like, hey man, I finished Mark, can you send me Luke and we'll try and make this match some? These guys, they didn't even speak the same language or live within the same century oftentimes. But we see just how much the Bible connects with itself. This reminds me of a verse in Isaiah chapter 46. In Isaiah 46 verses 9 and 10, Isaiah says this, speaking of God, Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. The only way that this book could make this much sense, despite it being written over three continents, three languages, 40 different guys, is if God's the author. Is if God's the author. There's no way you could get a book this harmonious or with this much unity. And the last proof for biblical inspiration is this, the fulfillment of prophecy. The fulfillment of prophecy. Now when we think about biblical prophecy, we think of prophets from the Old Testament. We think of prophets in the New Testament. It's very likely that when you think about a prophet, you just think about his second job. He actually had two jobs. The first job was to foretell. The prophet would just plainly reveal God's word. That's kind of what I'm doing tonight. You just tell God's word as it is. There's nothing prophetic or miraculous about that in the futuristic way we think of the term. When you and I think about prophets, we think about the second act of his work. We think of him foretelling. That is, telling before it happens. We think of someone who predicts the future as it has been revealed by God and the Holy Spirit. The Bible explains how these men could predict the future. We'll want to start with reading Luke chapter 1 and verse 70. And Luke chapter 1 and verse 17, the Bible says, As he, or God, he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets. God spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets who have been since the world began. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21 say this, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, one footnote says, or origin. So prophecy did not originate with men, it originated with God. He goes on to say in verse 21, For prophecy never came by the will of men, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. The Nestle Alan text says it like this, But men spoke from God as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So what we see is that these men could predict the future. They could tell you the mind of God because God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit, was within them, guiding their minds and their thoughts and their writings. 
But don't think of this as just God was using some robots. No. This was not like a human dictaphone, if you are old enough to know what that is. God allowed these men, these authors, to maintain their human personalities when they were writing. That's why all these men got the same Holy Spirit within them, but that's why Paul sounds different than Peter, and why Peter sounds different than Paul. Because God allowed them to keep their own human vocabulary and personality when they wrote their books. So we see these men had the mind of God. And I just want to give a list of 12 different prophecies they gave concerning Jesus. They started off in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. It was predicted and promised that the Messiah, the Savior, the one who was going to save the world, he was going to be born of a woman. So this Savior was going to be a man. But we learn in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14 he wasn't just going to be born from any woman. He was going to be born from a virgin. From a virgin. He would have a miraculous birth. We learned that he would be a descendant of Abraham. Genesis 22 and 18. Of the tribe of Judah. Genesis 49 and 10. From the family of King David. 2 Samuel 7. And born in Bethlehem. Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. Does that sound pretty specific? It goes on. The Bible goes on to say that the Jews, the Messiah's own people, would reject him, Psalm 118.22, and that the Messiah would be crucified by the people, Psalm 22 and verse 16, not because he did something wrong. He didn't do anything wrong. The Messiah didn't do anything wrong. He died for the people's sins, Isaiah 53. But though he was killed and he was murdered, that would not be the end of him. He would be raised from the dead. Psalm 16 and verse 10. The Old Testament continues and it says that Moses, he prophesied in Deuteronomy 18 that another man would come in the future, another prophet, and he would bring a new system. He would bring a new law. He would bring a new covenant. What Jeremiah calls in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, the new covenant or the new testament. Now, what we just quickly skimmed over is 12 different prophecies ranging from 600 years to 4,000 years before Jesus. And yet, God's people, His prophets, spoke with the most precise accuracy. The most precise accuracy. And all of these prophecies were perfectly fulfilled. In fact, that's exactly why Jesus came into the world. In Galatians 4, 4 and 5, But when the fullness of the time had come, at the perfect time, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. And we'll stop reading there. Jesus, He came to earth and He lived under the Old Testament. And when He came to earth, He says in Matthew 5 and 17, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. So Jesus Christ, God sent His Son Jesus to fulfill all of the prophecies concerning Him that were existing for over 4,000 years before His birth. Extreme accuracy. Jesus came to fulfill His Father's will, to fulfill the old law, and thus He did. 
And what we can conclude, conclude from this section is that the Bible is inspired. It comes from God. And when you and I read it, it's as if we are reading and hearing the voice of God. God speaks to us through His Word. But what we want to end off with tonight is this third point. We've talked about the Bible, its organization. We've talked about the Bible and its inspiration. But we want to talk about the message, and it's of salvation. This message, message of salvation is called the gospel. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 1, the Bible says this, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel, which I preach to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which you also, also you are saved. If you hold fast that word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. So he's telling them, I preached the gospel to you guys, I'm doing it again, and here's the gospel, folks. Verse 3. For I deliver to you, first of all, that which I also received from the Holy Spirit, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That's according to the Old Testament. And we already read that verse. According to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again, He was resurrected the third day according to the Scriptures or the Old Testament. So He says, everything we're preaching... This has been in existence for 4,000 years. Everyone's been waiting for this. This is the gospel. This is the good news of salvation. And as we wrap up our sermon tonight, we need to see this. No, we're not going to study every book of the Bible and be here until whenever. Here's a quick summary of the Bible. If you've never read the Bible before, here's its message. Genesis is the first book, and it's the first book because Genesis means beginning. It is the book of beginnings. It's the beginning of creation. It's the beginning of time. It's the beginning of space and of matter. It's the beginning of life. It's the beginning of sin. Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. They disobeyed God. And what happened when they sinned is that the tree of life the tree that had fruit that would help them live forever, they lost it. They lost access. And they couldn't live forever anymore. That was God's will. He wanted them to live forever. So they sinned. And what is sin? It is lawlessness. When God says to do something and we don't do it, that's not a mistake. That's sin. And sins are mistakes. Now what we see is that sin separates us from God Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. And it ruins our relationship with God. The penalty for sin is death. In the Old Testament, physical, sometimes. But every time it was spiritual. Whenever someone sins today, the penalty is spiritual death. Now the opposite of Genesis, if Genesis is the beginning, then the end is Revelation. And the whole goal of Revelation is it's the book of endings. In Genesis, man sinned, and Revelation, it teaches that Jesus saves. The tree of life, which was once lost for thousands of years, is now found again. 
And the reason why it's accessible again is because salvation was brought by Jesus. The gospel is the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ. The reason why it was good news is because there was first some bad news. You cannot have good news without bad news. The bad news is, or was, that everybody on planet earth who's not a baby, who's not a child, who is not mentally incompetent, has sinned. Romans chapter 3 and verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6 and 23, And the wages of sin is death. In order to redeem us and to save us, God sent His Son to die for the sins of the world. And that's the good news. The good news is the gospel, that Jesus came to die for our sins. It is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It must be believed in order to be saved, but it also must be obeyed to be saved. Here is a picture of what I mean. The gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. The gospel can be reenacted, and it must be reenacted. The Bible says when someone is baptized, they become united. When they go down into the water, it's as if they died. They died, and they're united with Jesus' death on the cross. When they're under the water, they're buried, just like Jesus was buried. And when they come up out of the water, they're raised to walk a new life, just like Jesus was resurrected, to never die again. But there is something different from when the way Jesus was raised and the way we are raised from death. Jesus was raised to never die again. He sits at the throne of the Father on high, and He is watching us at this moment. But you and I today, when we are baptized and we come up out of the water, it's still possible to die spiritually. It's still possible to sin. It's still possible to fall away. So it is not once saved, always saved. No. But this is the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And this is the gospel reenacted when we baptize an individual. And they become a partaker or a sharer in the blessings of Jesus' death. Here we're going to read two last verses, then we're done. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 6 says this, Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you, and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels. He's talking about when Jesus comes back. This is what it's going to be like when Jesus comes back. Verse 8. In flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These people, the ones who don't know God and don't obey the gospel, shall be punished, verse 9, with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. When He comes in that day, that is the day of judgment, to be glorified in His saints and to be admired among all those who believe, because our testimony among you was believed." Jesus has died for everybody who's ever lived, for everyone else's sins, everyone's sins. 
But that doesn't mean everyone's going to be saved. And the reason why not everyone's going to be saved is because not everybody know Jesus, knows Jesus, and not everybody's obeyed the gospel or been baptized. And he says the people who don't know God and those who don't obey the gospel, bad stuff is coming. Bad stuff is coming. And the reason why we read this verse is to explain why we're here this evening. The last words of Jesus, when he ascended back into heaven, after he'd already died, was buried, and resurrected, he says this, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature or human. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. The reason why we preach this is because this is the story of the Bible. Man had a problem he couldn't fix. He had a debt he could not pay, so God died for man. God came down to earth so that man could go up. God, Jesus, was broken and beaten so that we could be healed. He died so that we could live. He came down so that we could go up. And that's the gospel. We preach this message because it is the message of salvation. And this is good news, but it can't be good news without the bad news. So, as we extend the invitation, God has done His part. He sent His Son to die for our sins. He sent the Holy Spirit to teach us what we need to do. Now it's time for us. The Bible commands that anybody and everybody hear His Word. Faith comes by hearing the Word of God. Then we must believe the Gospel. We must believe that Jesus died, was buried, and was resurrected. He died for me. And we got to repent. we got to change the way we live. We can't live for sin any longer. we got to live for God. We have to confess the name of Jesus, or else He will not confess us. Then we must be baptized in water, becoming united with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and live a faithful life till we die or He comes back. If there's someone who needs assistance, who would like to be baptized, we would love to help. But maybe you're here and you've already done that. You don't have to get baptized again. The Bible says we can pray for you and with you. If there's one that needs help, please come while we stand and sing the song of invitation.